0: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Podcast. My name's Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In this episode of Thrill of the Hill... I sit down with Working for Waders, Patrick Laurie, and we discuss the decline of waders in Scotland, the practical steps farmers can take to counter the biodiversity crisis, as well as reflect on good practice, the trees versus waders debate, and other points of interest. Hello, Patrick, how's it going?
1: Hello, how are you doing? I'm
0: very well, thanks. Thanks for, for coming on today. We really appreciate the fact that you're you're taking the time to have a sit-down with us. Um I wonder, Patrick, whether or not you'd kick us off with just a, a kind of quick introduction of yourself and the kind of background to, to working for waders.
1: Yeah, so um my name's Patrick Laurie. I um run a, a hill farm here in Galloway, just outside Dolbeity. Um, I breed um, Galloway cattle and and um, sell off pedigree um, Galloway cattle each year, so um, I'm quite hands full with that across 1,600 acres. Um, and well, that's the, the main dollop, and there's bits and pieces dotted about. But um, I also work as a as a writer and as a journalist, and I've got various other projects going. But one of the things I've been working on the last few years is is working for Waders, which is a kind of collaboration between lots of organizations who are involved in in wader conservation in scotland so we've got rspb we've got um british trust for ornithology we've got um some of the shooting organizations as well actually sort of working across kind of traditional divides we actually um deal with everybody who's interested in 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 wader conservation and we also deal not only with organizations but but individuals so there's lots of people involved in working for waders who are kind of representing their organization and it's trying to make sure that people are are, are working together better. Um, But also there's people like me who don't belong to any organization. There's people like me who, who just I'm purely just involved in working for waders because I'm a farmer and because I'm interested in, in the kind of stuff that's happening. Um, So yeah, whatever I say next necessarily doesn't, I mean, we have no official kind of party line that is effectively our party line is that working for waders helps people work together better, but Within that, we don't have particular policy statements. We put together kind of best practice guidance. We support people who want to do better for waiters. We um, run various projects and schemes to help people find out more about waiters. But um, yeah, I'm not necessarily have my, my, sort of my foot in my mouth over this. I'm worrying about whether I'll say the right thing on behalf of working for waiters is because I don't I really believe there is a right thing on behalf of working for waiters. I think working for waiters is more about, is more about the conversation and then more about getting people around the table.
0: Perfect. Yep. No, well, we're happy to have you around this virtual table. <laughs> so, Patrick, the, the idea with the podcast is that we get to discuss the topics that are affecting um, farmers who are operating in the farmed upland environment. Can you just set the scene for our listeners and tell us what constitutes a ground nesting wading bird and why are they important from a um, biodiversity standpoint?
1: So, um there's a waders. I mean, waders are, is is a is a big, clumsy, silly name to give to a very, very big variety of different birds um, right the way across the world. Although some places they're called shorebirds rather than waders, it all means the same thing. Um, working for waders specifically looks at curlews, um, looks at oyster catchers, lapwings, redshank, and golden plover. So those are those are sort of the big five waders that working for waders is interested in but there are others there'll be there'll be several other species of waders that we get in this country but I suppose those five are the ones that you'd reckon would be most closely associated to uh farming in Scotland but uh, yeah more or less also upland farming in Scotland so um and I think that, that they're really important they've been really important in Scotland for centuries There's the the the, the when I say wading birds are all quite different they all do They're all quite noisy. They're all quite obvious. If you're out in the countryside and there's waders around, you tend to know it. Um, So actually, yeah, they figured quite big in terms of the sort of culture and the the heritage of the place. Um, Actually go back to, I'm 36, go back to my dad and his dad's generation. You almost couldn't really imagine farmland without waders in it. Um, And it's only in the last 20 years, probably 15, 20 years, where they've really started to collapse. The numbers when you look at some of the figures. Curlew's here, where I am in Duffusa Galloway, down by, well, more than three quarters since the mid '90s. Um, Lapwings down by two thirds in that same time. Um, yeah, it's a big, they're significant. I think not just because they are um, beautiful and interesting and uh, and attractive, and they say a lot about the culture of a place, but also they 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 kind of indicate the condition of a place they kind of the, the it waders don't exist completely in isolation they eat lots of invertebrates and if you don't have the invertebrates then you don't have maybe some of the diversity of plants that the invertebrates like so they're kind of like a handy marker to tell how things are going and i think um they're significant because the big declines we've seen tell us that something's not right so so i think yeah we we really do they are worth paying attention to even beyond the fact that they're lovely looking birds
0: it's interesting. Some of the things you say there, Patrick. I, I speak with farmers all the time, and they're always telling me that they're noticing fewer and fewer breeding birds in general. Do we have any kind of figures or statistics around wader decline in Scotland and, and why it's a big issue?
1: Yeah. So I think um, the, the the figures that we get uh, the figures that we get are, are pretty compelling. Um, like we're seeing just just sort of almost sort of wholesale collapse in some places. Um, of particularly birds like lapwings, which are very sensitive to change. And actually, you can lose lapwings very quickly over the course of three, four, five years. You can go from having good numbers of lapwings to having very few lapwings. Um, and as, as I say, that's that's in some places, that's more than a two-thirds decline of lapwings in Scotland. Um, but curlews take slightly longer to decline. And actually, the problems that curlews suffer, um, they can go on for many years struggling and, and give quite a misleading impression of what's happening. Um but yeah, um upwards of three quarters of curlews in Scotland lost um during the during the, the the last sort of twenty, twenty-five years. Um and there's all sorts of different reasons to that. There's no kind of one 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 answer to this. There's there's lots of different factors at play. Um but I think probably what we're seeing is a bit of a perfect storm, everything kind of all happening together. And when you go to different parts of Scotland, you speak to people who who, who are absolutely adamant that they know the answer of what the problem is for their curlews or their lapwings and you go to another part of Scotland and that factor might not even figure at all so so it's not it's not very straightforward and that's one of the encouraging things about working for waders is uh, the scientists the ecologists are very good at turning out paperwork very good at turning out studies to say here's the solution in x y or z location but that might not be what works for you. That might not be your answer. So we, we actually need to hear from farmers what, what their problems are and, and really kind of start to drill into that in a lot more tighter detail, almost on a farm-by-farm basis in some places.
0: In previous years, Patrick, Scottish Government have listed ground-nesting wading birds, oyster catchers, red shank, snipe, lapwing, as national priority species. Presumably, you welcome that, but from a practical perspective, what does having a status like that actually mean on the ground?
1: Um, well, here's where I'm probably rather allowed to work break from the party line, but um, I actually don't know really what those designations do for us. Um, if you're really interested in wages, yeah, maybe they add a little bit of publicity and a little bit of focus and try and get people talking a little bit more but um there's lots of ways to do that i'm not i'm not i'm not convinced that um yeah those kind of designations you can just say right well we've designated that bird now right that's half the battle um and i think in some ways when we fight to achieve those designations they can seem almost like a like a like a battle won in themselves and actually just because a bird designated doesn't give it any better chance of survival so um it's more like the starting gun rather than the rather than the the final destination for these for these birds so maybe i'm being a bit maybe i'm being a bit cynical about it and i'd like to see how some of these de- how some of these sort of schedulings and de- um, designations will help in the long run but in the the short term part of me thinks yeah great those birds have been those the, the value of those birds has been recognized but, but that has that alone hasn't taken us further towards doing anything about their decline. So
0: Patrick what what are some of the practical steps farmers can take to prevent the decline and and maybe you know some of our listeners will be interested in enhancing their farms for waders. what what are some of the things that you would encourage them to take a look at?
1: So there's loads of things um there's loads of different angles to this and actually quite a lot of the information and advice you can give in terms of waders will be very will be very localized um where i am in in galloway um i would say one of the main drivers to decline over the last 25 30 years has been a a huge almost phenomenal level of of commercial forestry expansion um and so commercial forestry not only removes habitats from waders it also breaks up the habitats that survive and it also brings an awful lot of additional predation onto the hill so there'll be more foxes more crows um there'll be there'll be a, a predation pressure that wasn't there before um that's a huge issue for me in fact that's probably the main issue for me but i go to other parts of scotland and actually when i'm looking at um wader conservation or helping people with weight of conservation parts of it is about Seasonal grazing, getting cows out into into wet meadows, and and trying to get a nicer balance of vegetation types in 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 wet grassland. Um, maybe it's about adjusting water table, doing some bits and pieces about um, digging wader scrapes potentially, and, and and introducing wetlands into 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 farm into yeah into grazing land. Um, predator control is a, is a huge deal, and actually, there's times when I think. I go through some beautiful habitat, and there's no waders in it. And actually, the missing link really is just predator control. That's that's management of foxes, foxes and crows. We are all year, but but particularly during the breeding season. So there's loads of different options, and I think the answer for lots of people will depend upon where they are and what their and what their what their objectives are. But I'm yet to find a farm that that couldn't do anything for waders. I'm yet to find the farm where there was nothing they could improve, and I'm yet to find the farm there was there was no new measures they could bring in to make their land more to make their land more more useful for wading birds so maybe that's a bit of a throwdown and, and and a challenge to, to to people listening is um if you think you've got it perfect let's, let's let's there's always something to tighten up
0: one of the really encouraging things that you just said there well, well actually too was that you touched on the issue of of, of trees um but also, the the issue of predator control and the need for predator control. I, I sat down very recently with Dick Bartlett from British Merlins, Um and uh, Dick is a, a, a advisor for the the, the Merlins, um particularly in the the northeast of Scotland. Um, and those were two of the things that he really drove home uh, in terms of discussion about enhancing the the uplands for for waders. So that's that's really good to to get that consistency. Can um, can can you talk a little bit about the different habitat requirements for waders? Presumably, different waders um, are in different locations throughout Scotland, or or is there a general rule of thumb for, for where to find them?
1: It um it'll vary. I mean, most of the waders uh, I've listed, most of those target waders that we're interested in, will be there. Will be some in probably every parish in Scotland, but I think the ratio or diversity of of which species are where is going to vary down even to a field by field basis. So, um, just as an example, curlews might like, um, a little bit of access to rough grass and heather moorland. They might also like a bit of rushy sort of in by pasture. They might like good productive grassland and they might like even in the space of a day to move around between those three. Whereas a bird like a lapwing likes really, really short stuff. Um, proper proper tightly grazed sheep pasture, good productive grass, but but at a very short level. They don't they like to build their nests on in in very, very short grass. Um, and actually they'll nest also in arable, um, in a way that curlews perhaps won't. So they'll nest in amongst um potatoes, they'll nest in amongst turnips, they'll nest in cereal crops. Um so each species, this is again why calling them waders isn't actually very helpful, because what's good for one species might just be absolutely toxic to another species. And it's really getting an idea we're still lucky in Scotland particularly compared to England and Wales Scotland's seen massive declines in waders but we've still got lots we've still got we've still got lots of waders about so actually if you look at a field and say you've got a few lapwings in it you can use that to guide your management to make it better for lapwings but I mean it would be very hard and probably impossible to take a piece of land that didn't have any waders in it and start trying to manage it to get them sort of attracted to go to that place so as i say in a way we're lucky that we've got lucky lucky i suppose is relative but but we're in a stronger position than they are in england and wales because there are lots of places where there are still very small populations of birds and that as a starting point that's way better than not having any at all do you
0: think that distribution of waders, the the kind of pockets that Scotland still has, is that reflective of a different land type that we're working with up here, or I mean, what can what can you attribute that to?
1: I think there's lots of factors at play. I think, um, yeah, we we've got a lot, a lot more sort of traditional or semi-natural. Um, grassland which i think would be associated with curlews and 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 say golden plover on the high on the high mountain tops where golden plover often breed um but i think also culturally the way we've i mean hit the sort of the history of 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 farming in scotland and the way we've kind of um progressed over the last 50 years we're not we're not as incredibly well advanced down the line of of kind of future food systems the way they are and if you go to places like uh Lincolnshire and East Anglia um where they've just got sort of extensive very very intensively managed um agricultural systems in place I think there's a kind of an interplay between a very old-fashioned style of crofting and small-scale farming on the west coast of Scotland and that kind of just traces its way through so the fact that the fact that um, the space within what we're currently doing um, kind of means we've held we've held on to a lot. Um, we've held on to a lot of stuff a lot better than than maybe maybe in England or Wales. But I suppose you could say, kind of confusingly, you could say that Wales has a similar kind of history, a similar kind of landscape, a lot of the similar kind of stories. But actually, w- waders in Wales are in even worse trouble than they are in Scotland. So um, yeah, maybe there's more. There's maybe more to unpick there. I
0: wanted to just run a couple of scenarios past you, a couple of different habitat types if you like that are on farms and kind of get your opinion on on why they're important and how we go about improving them Um, so if, if patrick if that's all right with you we'll start with oh, uh, with the silage cutting in terms of cutting in a wildlife friendly manner that, that's often discussed with with land managers Um, how should you be cutting your your silage to benefit ground nesting wading birds
1: So from what I've seen, most of the time, the conflicts that, that, that arise with silage and waders, um, tends to be specifically to do with curlews. Um, by the time you've come to cut grass, the, come to cut grass for most other species, um, they don't really want to be in kind of grass that, that, that sort of height. Um, lapwings in particular, lapwings near me nest in silage fields, but, um, then they, their nests never last long enough to hatch out. They're often predated. They're often damaged by rolling or they're often damaged by slurry spreading. Um, so they tend not to last to sort of silage cutting stage. But when it comes to curlews, it is possible to, in advance of cutting the field, um, work out where the birds are, work out where the nest is. It, it's, it can be very hard to find the nest, um, but it is possible with a lot of time and a lot of work just watching and waiting and spying um to find it and then you can mark the nest and then you can um cut around the nest and effectively leave a little area around the nest uncut. Um in parts of England they've done that and actually the curlews have gone on to fledge their chicks and, and get away. What then happens to them? I mean it's still a long way. It's fledging a ch- uh, sorry hatching a chick is one thing but fledging it actually getting it to a stage where it can fly is is quite another. So um Yeah, there's lots of moving parts in that, but it is perfectly possible to do it. If you've got chicks that have already hatched and they're living in the actual silage crop, that could be a huge challenge because obviously they're moving about. You can't work out what they are. And I think that might be a bigger problem than damaging the nest because there's very little that humans can do about that. Um, And chicks, particularly when they're little, I mean, there's some clever ways of cutting a field so that you're slowly you're cutting from the inside out, so you're pushing birds into the margins, so you're not actually sort of compressing everything into one small island in the middle, and 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 then that's when you really risk harming stuff. Um, small chicks don't really herd like that quite often, and actually they're more likely just to clamp down, and you'll just hit your you know, chances are you might hit them with the mower just because they're trying to hide from you rather than you're moving them around. Um, so it can get it can get quite tricky. It, it 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 can be difficult but one of the things i've been doing here is working with my neighbors and putting in a lot of time kind of spotting stuff um trying to come up with the farmers on the ground to make solutions to make sure that the chicks have the best chance of success and that, again that goes back to what i was saying earlier there's no kind of shortcuts here there's no kind of sort of textbook solution to this it really is working out what's going to work on each property
0: brilliant um, what about uh, rush pasture? Where does that fit into the discussion on farm? A lot of farmers will think of rushes as something to be cut, sprayed and improved. Um, what do you think about that?
1: I think that's, in, in a wader sense, I think that's 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 great. And that's actually one of the really good things um, that <laughs> when it comes to wader conservation, what's good for certain wader species is actually really good for agriculture as well. And that's that's where farmers want to get to. I mean, when I say earlier that uh, curlews quite a, like a, a good rushy field, yeah, they do quite like a good rushy field, but they don't like a field that's so rushy there's no grass in it. Um, and they don't like the same with lapwings. Lapwings actually avoid rushes, too many rushes. They're like a little tuft to of rushes here and there, in the same way as most fields will have a little tuft to rushes here and there. But nothing, nothing stands to gain from a field that's absolutely hammered with rushes. So um, when farmers start looking at um, rush management solutions, part of me is thinking, fantastic you can this is that that's an answer that, that ticks both boxes and when i worked for um soil association we ran um rush management workshops helping farmers kind of really address issues they had with rushes in 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 productive grassland that was just like it, i was running those workshops trying to help farmers um to improve the productivity of their grassland and i might as well everything i said might as well have applied just as well to conservation, so the two, particularly when it comes to lapwings, the two almost just completely overlap. If you want good productive grassland to graze sheep on, that's that's what a lapwing wants too. So there's no there's no conflict there, I don't think.
0: Yeah, I think you've just hit on something that's really um, really quite important actually, and that's that the idea that setting aside a, a piece of ground um, does not necessarily mean no management at all and that that no management um, is not beneficial for for biodiversity i think there's there's i'm maybe not parsing it out quite right but th- there's a really good message there that we need to proactively manage for conservation and and not be inclined to abandon land i suppose
1: yeah totally and i think that's what goes back to that goes back to this kind of story of what waders are in Scotland is they're fa- they're farmland birds, and and they want you to farm. <laughs> they do best when the when the farm's working, when the farm's working well. Uh, they've only done. They've only kind of really started to struggle because um, some of the more productive systems just kind of trim the edges off and just just operate on just too tight a margin that just tip waders off so quite often when you go and and speak to farmers and look at the systems they've got in place um it's really encouraging to see that you really don't have to do much just have to it's more a tweaking um and and certainly the idea that you would take land out of production or that you would that you would kind of like wrap a a certain area in cotton wool and prevent livestock from going in it or prevent grass from being cut in it i'm not actually sure that would give any benefit To waders anyway they they really do they're they're, they're farm birds
0: can you talk a little bit patrick about the importance of wader scrapes um what, what are they why are they good for waders and do you have any tips for the construction of a successful wader scrape
1: yeah wader scrapes wader scrapes are good for lots of reasons i think primarily because they're quite easy to do and they're quite cheap to do so so a to scrape really is just a bit of a scratch in the ground that fills with water just so that you have access to a little bit of standing water in a, in a field or in a naturally wet bit. I mean, it's not, nece- it's not necessarily an idea that you would go and find a dry bit and try and somehow make water stand in it. And if you have a, a corner of a field where, where there's naturally it's naturally rashier or there's sort of a soggy bit to it, um, that's the kind of area where where you you might want to look at, at just digging away to scrape they tend to be quite small they tend to be only sort of um 10 20 30 40 square feet um with a with a if anything a, a, ideally a good kind of um rather than being circular make the make the edge of the shape of it as as kind of as long as possible so windy edges and and um lots of sort of little turns and corners around the edge to make sure that the amount of the amount of sort of space where water is the amount of shoreline is absolutely maximised and then just it's really then just a matter of 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 standing back to see to see how you get on with it they really shouldn't be as I say they shouldn't be deep this is this is certainly nothing like a pond but um, and then going back to even what we were talking about before right? this is not a matter of removing these places from management it's about then grazing them it's about then getting livestock through them it's about having yeah, actually it probably flies in the face of probably what a lot of people would like to see on farmland. But it's about having a bit of a messy bit. It's about having a bit of a muddy bit. It's about having a bit of a scruffy, bit of a scruffy corner. And it's amazing some places where you see wader scrapes done right. Um, it really is an absolute magnet to the birds, and it's really, I mean, it's, it, it can be a really useful habitat feature. But at the same time, we can't just make wader scrapes until we have all the waders we want again. It's only one tiny piece of the puzzle. And actually, if you've got Waders in a certain place. You might like to look at uh, impact of cutting of silage. You might like to do some predator control. You might like to do some different kinds of grazing patterns, and you might also like to in- make a couple of wader scrapes on top of that. So it's a great, it's a great and simple thing you can do. But but I'm starting to think about it more in terms of um, yeah, your first step. It might be the first thing you might like to do. On that journey but but yeah it's certainly certainly not the answer in and of itself
0: um a bit of a disclaimer here folks but uh, patrick and i have, have both worked um with uh, with clients who have been putting in waiter scrapes over the past couple of years now um and uh i know some of the feedback that i've had patrick maybe you can echo this is that in addition to the waiter benefits, some of the the biodiversity benefit from an invertebrate point of view um has been really encouraging just to have that kind of wetter area in the field for things to develop a little so uh yeah no scrapes definitely definitely a way forward
1: no i think i think there's there's lots to be said for them but i suppose there's been a few times when i've tried to put them for, tried to encourage people into doing stuff like it and it does come back to yeah messiness i think and people people dislike that sort of that scruffy feel but At the same time, though, I think little um, ponds and pools and little wet scrapes and corners are exactly how things might have looked to our parents or our grandparents or our great grandparents. So it's more, it's about very slightly setting back the clock, because I suppose more than anything, some places, when you go to somewhere where it's a little rushy corner, um, what do you, what really are you going to do with that? You're never going to be able to cut grass on it. It's never going to be a good piece of ground. Um, So rather than Batter your brains out, trying to drain it and trying to get the best out of it. Why not just slightly go with the flow and turn it into something slightly different? So that's if if you can if you can start to get your head around it. I took a certain amount of getting my head around it to begin with, but if you start to get your head around it, yeah, absolutely. I don't think there'll be anybody in Scotland who'll be listening to this thinking, "Well, I haven't got a single haven't got a single rashy corner anywhere on the farm." so it's just about getting the best of that and making sure that um, you can give something for give something for, for say for lapwings or for snipe or, and there's all sorts of stuff you set up a camera or set up some way of monitoring these wader scrapes all kinds of stuff uses them like you say uh, Alex the the, the um, invertebrates are great but sometimes you get you get also all kinds of stuff turns up You get all manner of duck using them at night time and and they're nice wee things to have interesting things to have
0: Patrick weird does uh... Woodland fit into the discussion, and can you talk a little bit about the link between trees and predatory corvid species
1: yeah it's it's a weird one in some ways in some ways we don't really know everything about it, so people are quite reluctant to 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 proclaim too heavily on it but um and i'll try <laughs> try not to proclaim too heavily on it, but it certainly does there certainly is a link between um establishment of Trees and woodland in wader sensitive areas, um, waders just aren't keen. They just, they just, they just don't buy into trees at all. And so, as a result, they feel anxious about trees. They often won't use ground that is near trees. Um, and some studies have said that um, certain wader species won't nest within. Or well, I've just seen just recently, it's between four and six hundred meters. Some of, some species of wader won't, won't nest within four and six hundred meters of trees. So, even in areas that are useful for waders. Um, if there's trees next door, um, those areas can be sort of almost sort of put out of use, or was like um, knocked out of, uh, had their value knocked out of them just by what's happening next to them. And in a way, that's linked to crows, which are going to sit up high on the top of a tree, and um, they're going to watch for where nests. nests are going to come down and steal the eggs. It's also linked to slightly changed priorities in terms of land management so um a farmer or a a hill shepherd might have every reason to to shoot foxes but um big forestry interests might not have a have a reason to 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 shoot foxes or manage foxes so that can then mean that foxes start the numbers can build a little bit and the numbers can 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 spill out obviously a fox doesn't isn't just going to stay in the forest the whole time he's going to go wherever he thinks he can get something to eat um so there's a there's a tension there um and I suppose it also links to it links to to other species like badgers that that people are people are showing an increased interest in over the last few months over the last few years about whether the badgers were traditionally in certain places when their waders were abundant um so there's lots i mean it's it, it gets it gets really complicated but I think one of the priorities has to be that if you're looking at planting if you're looking at creating woodland um You've kind of got to got to have a little bit of a wader hat on in the back of your mind somewhere, just and just kind of bear in mind what impact that might have. And if you've got a good if you've got a good place for, for waders, um, yeah, you really really do. I'd really recommend have a good think about about ways to either move what you're proposing elsewhere or try and integrate it more carefully. There are ways to integrate the two. I mean, they're not completely uh, sort of incompatible, but you do just have to really think carefully.
0: Just switching gears a little here, Patrick, climate change is obviously impacting every species to some degree, um, but do we know what kind of impact it's having on Scotland's waders? Um, Are longer, drier summers something that we should be concerned about?
1: Yeah, it sort of cuts, it cuts both ways. I think one we've seen in the last 10 years, we've seen extreme weather. We've had incredibly long, dry summers and equally it sticks in my mind for some reason 2012 was just the worst wet summer i can ever remember in my life i don't think we had a single day of sunshine here in galloway it was absolutely grim any any extreme of weather like that is just a disaster when the ground's too dry there's no way waders obviously with long pointy beaks they've got no way to feed in the ground because there's no mud there's nothing to nothing to nothing to probe um and similarly if it's very very wet and too boggy you get chicks get washed away you get nests damaged you get Everything gets chilled and cold and gloomy and miserable. So, that much more unpredictable weather pattern certainly, I think, has is a concern um, for 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 wader conservation. Um, but yet, this last summer here actually has seen some. Fine, we were very cold, very cold to begin with, and then stayed dry. Um, it looked really bad. But actually, in retrospect, by about midsummer, it seemed like a lot of the wader breeding cycles were simply on hold, and then they kind of kicked in later on in the summer. And actually, it it didn't turn out to be that bad this year. I mean, it obviously it wasn't great because waders generally aren't doing very well in Galloway. But what I saw was 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 fair. It was just late. So I mean, the birds are also quite adaptable um, within 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 reason. The birds are quite adaptable to changes. It's it's the big changes and this and this rather threatening direction of travel that's 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 maybe the bigger concern.
0: And uh, Patrick, can we just talk a little bit about the Working for Waiters initiative um, as a as a group? I mean, do you have a, an example of projects that you've been involved in in the past? I mean, what what kind of scope and reach does the organisation have?
1: I'm not, so I'm not complete sure, and this has taken a certain certain time for me to get my head around it. I'm not completely sure that we are an organisation, and there's a few times people have got in touch and said, "Hi, working for Waders. I'm really interested in Waders. I'm managing land here, there, and everywhere. How can I help?" And 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 I'm often the first point of contact to go back to those people, and and I think my answer generally is, "Um, you you're almost already helping, but it's not." we can't. We don't necessarily help. We don't, we don't necessarily have projects underway that we are kind of driving forward and pushing. Actually, one of our main um, functions is to link people who are already doing stuff. So quite often we hear people who say, um, say, for example, I've got a 500-acre um, hill farm and I'm doing this, that, and the other, and I'm interested in curlews and lapwings, and we shoot X number of foxes each year and we run crow traps and we're doing stuff for species-rich grassland. How do I get involved in working for waiters? And I go I have to go back and say, "You're doing it. You're doing. You're doing everything. You're doing everything right." Um, so, so the idea then that somehow we confer sort of a, a special v- value added. Uh, I'm not sure we really do in that respect. I mean, we we commission um, studies and research, and we run surveys, and we do a lot of stuff to help people do stuff better. But but we I mean for a start we don't really have we don't even really have the budget to be commissioning stuff and doing stuff in our own right we're we're more about adding value to the people who are already doing good stuff and yeah there's loads of really good stuff going on and and we're always all the time in contact with farmers and gamekeepers and all manner of people who are doing their best for waders and actually one of the most satisfying things I've seen us do is to be able to say well uh very interesting to meet you but have you met x y or z and you put them in touch with other people who were doing good stuff those kind of conversations where we can almost be like a switchboard to say right you want to do this right i actually know the guy who invented that like when you mentioned dick bartlett earlier like bits and pieces from what dick has done um feed straight into working for waders it's absolutely fantastic but how do you get in touch with dick how do you if unless you're interested in 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 moreland management particularly would it even cross your mind to get in touch with dick even if you could get in touch with him so it's just about getting that idea of what's going on on the ground um funding studies plugging gaps and making sure that we're all pushing in the same direction one of the most depressing things in the past over the last sort of 10 years is the amount of times when you go and see uh, a study or a piece of research being undertaken and you're like but but other people are doing this right now and you go and speak to the researchers oh we didn't know they were doing it so it seems like quite often we we kind of start projects and get involved in stuff without really looking at what's going on around us. That's been really good, actually. This will sound slightly counterintuitive, but when it comes to duplication of effort, one of the great successes of working for waders is I think it stopped a lot of research from happening, which, okay, that sounds silly, but it stopped a lot of research from happening because it's research that had already happened and we didn't need that. Or actually, if you you did want to study that, maybe study this aspect of it so you're not doubling up. So everybody, I think that kind of switchboard feeling, that kind of hub feeling, um, is probably the main, probably the main thing. That's why we're always looking, looking to hear for people who are, yeah, in, getting involved in wader conservation. Um, give us a ring, let's have a chat, let's let's find out what you're doing. We might be able to help put you in touch with other people. We might be able to give you another idea that we just heard on the phone from someone else we spoke to earlier in the week. So yeah, it's that. I, I see that more as our function, and and we're more kind of a group. Than an organisation, more more of a more of a team than an organisation.
0: Last year, Patrick, um, working for Waders, launched their their small grant. Um, what was involved with this um, at the time? Where do you see that going in the future? I mean, you guys have just had uh, an open application round that this year. What uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from that? And and do you think that's broadly been a success?
1: Yeah, I. Th- that's been really interesting. So last year we, we we launched a small grants fund that was available to farmers and land managers in Scotland up to a thousand pounds. We would support conservation projects up to the value of a thousand pounds, which is, okay, that's, that's tiny. That's not a huge amount of money. And nobody was really expecting uh, a dozen of those grants to really change the face of wader conservation in Scotland. But it was a really useful way to generate case studies, find out who's doing what, find out who wanted to get in touch. It, it helped us I mean, we all quite often talk about promoting things, ideas like wader scrapes. But when you start to get funding applications in for people who want to make wader scrapes, we start to learn as an as a group, as a as a team in working for waders, we start to learn what wader scrapes cost to make, and uh, when we have particularly looking for costed applications, we start to learn what farmers and land managers actually want to do, what they're willing to do, what they what they think is possible um so that was really useful for us in t- particularly when it comes to feeding into um talking about the future of um grant support and subsidy support and stuff like it's having that kind of practical experience knowing what those kind of estimations actually look like on the ground that's really useful but this year we 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 expanded the grant um to 3000 pounds um 3000 pounds each per holding um and that kind of gave us a slightly bigger picture of okay, well, um, if we put you up to three thousand pounds, if we give you three thousand pounds, you can do whatever you like for waiters. What would you like to do? We had we had a, we I think we had a better variety of options. That might just be because people had worked out that we existed um, more than anything, but and so we had more applications as a result. But we had a better diversity of applicants. Um, people wanting to do lots of different things and mainly people wanting to do um, collaborative projects where they work with their neighbours or they want to do stuff around predator control because predator control for a £1,000 really isn't, that's not a huge amount and it's quite difficult to quantify. We know that predator control is really important, but we don't really know how how to pay for it. I mean, what level of intensity you're going to do it. So, um, so at £3,000, we start to see applications for support for predator control and that's been really interesting as well. So. As I say, I don't think the grants were designed necessarily to transform the fortunes of waders in Scotland, but I think they allowed us to highlight who was doing what. They generated some great case studies, and they taught us loads about about what people were willing to do and the kind of ideas that people had for what for what they wanted.
0: Patrick, I I ask this as the final question to absolutely everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, what have you seen? recently or or what's happening within the industry right now that you think more people should be paying attention to do you want to highlight any good practices or innovative ideas that uh, that you've maybe seen recently
1: yeah that's a that's a that's a huge question because in some ways i see loads of stuff that makes me think yes this is just absolutely brilliant i'm really excited like I, i there's some really good progressive stuff going on and then in In other ways, I do see the legacy of still a lot of, still a lot of, a lot of old-fashioned, kind of not very productive thinking going on. So, around where I am in Galloway, I'm I'm really enjoying seeing how people are tuning into peatland. We've got a huge amount of peat here in Galloway, um, and actually trying to get farmers tuned in to peatland management, peatland conservation. 10 15 years ago was really hard because nobody nobody really nobody really got what it was about but now that's sinking in the seeing the way farmers seeing the way estates seeing the way private landowners are starting to to really understand what's possible and take kind of the template ideas that are generated by say like um, SNH or nature scots peatland action taking those ideas adapting them to fit Local, in local environments, local places, and then really making them work, getting people to really buy into what peatland is all about. That's ace. That's that's really cool. Um, and and it's I think it's probably particularly cool because as I say, I was I was trying to push this fifteen years ago, at a time when nobody wanted to be involved with it at all. So that's a I've been able to see that in my own working life. That complete transition from I don't know what this is. Don't really like it. All the way through to let's go full steam ahead. That's that's really inspiring. That's really encouraging.
0: So you're optimistic then about the future of, of conservation in Scotland more broadly. You would say?
1: Yeah, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to suck up a lot of change. There's a lot of there's a lot of big stuff coming down the pipeline. But I think I think we're in a stage now where conservation organisations don't just ignore farmers and landowners like they have been doing until the last little while. Uh, and i grew up in a in a in a in a, an advice and support system that was almost designed to disempower farmers and say you're the bad guys let us give that give that here we you can't be trusted to look after the countryside um whereas now i see kind of the tools and the steering wheel being put Back into the hands of farmers, and that that's got to be a good thing. That, if I know, that's that that is a really good thing. That's that's great news.
0: Well, on that positive note, Patrick, I think I'll, I'll just thank you again on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service for coming on this afternoon. It's been really good to have another chat with you, um, and uh, hopefully, we hear more from you in the future.
1: Brilliant. No, thank you for having me. Thank
0: you for listening to this episode of Thrill of the Hill part of Scotland's farm advisory service podcast. If you have any questions about any of the content covered here today, please do not hesitate to get in touch at 0300 323 0161 or contact us by email at advice@fas.scot.